Welcome to this limited series podcast called Teaching and Learning in a Pandemic. I'm Holly Clark with my co-host Ken Shelton, and we're looking at lessons learned and those lessons we can use to transform education in the future. So let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to this podcast series on teaching and learning in a pandemic. And this is episode four, where we're going to talk about equality in a pandemic and look closely at COVID numbers and what they tell us about this story. We've been talking about learning loss and the stories related to opportunity and access. And all of this directly ties into equity and especially equity in a pandemic. To understand this better, we need to examine some of the data around COVID and our schools. And Ken Shelton is joining me on this episode. And Ken, why don't you give us a contextual definition of equity and equality? Yeah, you know, it's important to have a contextual working understanding of the those two words. They tend to be used interchangeably, but they're not. So ultimately, equity, uh, let me actually, let me start off. Equality is treating everyone the same. So, for example, every student gets a textbook, every student gets a Chromebook, every student gets a seat, every student gets fill in the blank. That's equality. Equity is ensuring a distribution of resources so that every student has appropriate access and opportunity to the learning. Wi-Fi. So in the context of what I just shared, for example, uh, equity, equity would be if every student gets a textbook and every student gets a Chromebook. So maybe a student that has some sort of a uh, visual challenge, their Chromebook is uh, set up so that there will be a speech to text automated for them. That would be an, equi- uh, an example of equity because they're, they're, uh, an adjustment is made with the resources so that they have access and opportunity. Okay, so really helpful in thinking about this because I do think those get used incorrectly. I've often heard them interchange, those definitions interchanged uh, inappropriately. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to look at a really interesting story of COVID in schools. And this is coming at us from something called COVID Monitor. And you can go there. You can simply Google COVID Monitor. and You can see the statistics about COVID in the education system in the U.S. anytime that you want. So if you want, you can even go and look at it right now. And I'm going to open up the site. But this is done by um, um, Rebecca Jones. And and Ken, you have a really kind of fun story about Rebecca Jones, who's the co-founder of this COVID monitor. Yes. So like you just said, for the audience, it's the, T-H-E, the covidmonitor.com. And she's one of the co-founders. And the interesting thing about Rebecca Jones, she is a scientist, and uh, it's funny, her tagline on, on social media is uh, insubordinate scientists studying climate, storms, and natural hazards. And uh, she also um, did a lot of work with uh, GIS, which is Geographical Information Systems. And so originally, she was the, if I remember correctly, the Florida Health Commissioner, and um or she was she was in the Florida the Florida Department of Health. I do know that for sure. And ultimately, she was encouraged and um, essentially coerced, if you will, into providing data around the spread of COVID, particularly in schools, but even in general for cases. She was basically told to manipulate the numbers, and she refused to do it. And that was by the current governor of the state of Florida. And so. Um, Ultimately, she was uh, relieved of her duties 
And she recognized that there was a need for accurate data to be distributed to, uh, you know, educators, to parents, to the, to, you know, the public around things like COVID cases, uh, especially in schools. And so that's why she's one of the co-founders of uh, the COVID monitor, which will give you up to date information. And in fact, they encourage uh, you know, school representatives, if you will, to share their data on here, because ultimately the whole idea is that if we have consistent and accurate data, we can make more informed and better decisions around uh, the health and safety of ourselves and of students. And if you're a teacher, you may be able to find your school on this and kind of or school district and see what's happening in other schools in your district and see what your case reporting is. Now, that does uh qualify that the, your school has to report. And what we know from this website is only 24 states are reporting. And states like New York and Texas and New Mexico are reporting, but states like our own California is not reporting. And I'm thinking that's probably just a, a size issue, although Texas is doing it. And states like Oklahoma, one of my, you know, a state I work closely with, and so we're not going to be able to have the full story there. But here are some interesting statistics that uh, I was able to gather from this in an interview I saw Rebecca on. And so let's, uh, first of all, it's really interesting to note that there have been, since the fall, since we opened in August, there have been over 200,000 cases reported in these 24 district or 24 states and 5,000 districts. And if you think about it, that's only half. So we're probably going to be closer to 500,000 cases if everyone is reporting. Um, another thing that we know is that high schoolers are two times more likely than their elementary counterparts to get COVID. And when they get COVID at school, they take it back home. According to Rebecca Jones, um, there's only about 3% of schools that who fall in the safe uh, school portion from the CDC. So the CDC ranks what is uh, safe and only 3% of schools are in that green zone, while two thirds of them fall in the red zone and the other part falling somewhere in between going back and forth between red and um, orange. And so that's an incredible amount of schools that are in the red zone. Then she also reports on her own state <laughs> of um, Florida that has uh, doesn't have a mass policy in schools and half of the school districts in Florida do not require kids to wear masks to school. And what they're finding is that if you do not require masks at school, there's a two time, two times as more likely rate to get COVID from a school that doesn't require masks, which I find really interesting. So if you're if you're thinking about bringing your kids back, or they're going to go into remote learning, these are some pretty important statistics. In fact, the New York City school system probably used some of these statistics in deciding uh, whether or not to close. And while there was big pushback that bars shouldn't be open while schools are closed, uh, there's a lot more going into this. Uh, it's not that kids are making the choice as a person who is going to a bar is making an educated choice of what they're doing. So we have to really think about that. Let's um, look at just a couple other things that she says on this site. She says that most of the people who are looking at statistics and reporting on those and making decisions, they're getting their information from research done not in our country because we haven't done very much research. They're looking at South Korea. They're looking at... Um, other countries where uh, 
they're doing it right. <laughs> so they're looking at the statistics like, oh, France went back and oh, South Korea went back. But they went back with social distancing and, ma- and masks where a school in Florida is not doing that. And I don't really know what's happening in, in California in terms of that, but we have a state mandated mask situation. So I'm sure that kids are having to wear masks when they, in fact they do go back. So what she said is the bottom line is that it's way worse in schools than we think. And so that is the kind of place that an administrator needs to go to to make decisions that a teacher needs to go to to make decisions and that parents need to go to to make decisions. What do you think about some of these uh, facts? Well, I mean, you know, and, and tie this back to the equity and equality piece, because, you know, you can't guarantee resources uh, and support. And I think it's important to point out that a lot of the things that we're seeing now as a result of this pandemic they actually existed before the pandemic. They're just more magnified now. It's a tough decision to have to make. Do you shut down a school or do you keep the school open and put the students, the teachers, the support staff, the maintenance staff, the administrative staff mm-hmm. at risk? Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think it's critical for us to not forget that, you know, when students aren't in school, assuming they were even, even being supported while they were in school, you can't guarantee it in the home. And so what are we doing around monitoring and then making key decisions that provide uh, as much equitable access uh, for students as possible. I know a lot of, you know, you go back to the earlier parts of the pandemic, a lot of uh, administrators were doing what I identify, I call it educational triage, uh, because they were doing things to mitigate the effects of shifting immediately to a remote learning uh, environment. You know, things like handing out hotspots or you know, uh, buying Chromebooks, uh, you know, it's amazing. You know, here's one, because I know you and I have talked about this in uh, private conversations. It's amazing how quick so many school districts found money in the cushions of the sofa to go one-to-one. Whereas before, it wasn't a priority, even though you and I both know, and for the audience, we're staunch advocates for the appropriate use of technology in all learning spaces. But, you know, somehow it's like, like I said, they found some, some money in the cushions of the sofa. Now, with that being said, again, that was a triage decision, but now just simply handing a child a device is, does not provide equitable access to learning. It's how you're using the device and then how you're monitoring the use of the device to ensure that that student any barriers to learning for that student uh, are either eliminated or at minimum mitigated. And we touched on that in a previous topic. So I think ultimately, you know, uh, with the, with what Rebecca has done, you know what, I think there's a larger educational uh, message around what Rebecca has done. She was restricted and forced to do something that was against what she believed was her ethical and moral duty as a employee of the Florida department of health. And she was willing to take a firm stand on that and it cost her her job. And rather than use that as a, um, I guess the best way I can describe it, rather than allow that to inhibit what she felt was important, she co-founded the website that you're citing data from. Mm-hmm. And so, and I, that administrators should be looking at. Uh, correct. But I, th- I, I, I get it correct. And I think in the larger context, 
How often are we encouraging students to identify alternative pathways to realizing their full potential or, or doing something that they could say, okay, I know, I know like what she's done is still in line with her skills, her knowledge and her expertise. It's still around understanding, again, geographical information systems, being working in a state department of health, being able to get data, being able to uh, disaggregate, reaggregate, extrapolate, interpolate, all of those key words. See, I remember those things from math. Um, but all of those things with the numbers so that they provide a meaningful contextual value to someone who doesn't have the expertise she does. Think about the mindset of that. Now, how often is something like that encouraged in schools, let alone rewarded? So I think there's 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 multiple lessons of what, what you shared and what we're talking about. One is what are the most valuable, timely resources that a school district administrator or site level administrator can go to uh, to make a much more informed decision based on accurate, timely data? So that's one. Number two is recognizing that, you know, under the circumstances with the adjustments that have been made, how are you ensuring equality and equity for all students in the learning environments. And then, of course, the third thing is when we get past the pandemic, what would an environment look like that says to every student, you know, if you have an idea similar to like what Rebecca Jones did, we're going to support you in uh, realizing your full potential with that idea, especially if it's within a context of multiple learning, uh, multiple content areas. Uh, that is representational of your learning. So can I squirrel for a second, Ken? Because when you said all of this, I thought to myself, we're talking a lot about students and the equality and equity there. And then you said, you know, people found money in the couch cushion for these one-to-one. But what we didn't have is equity and equality for teachers because now they're, they have these devices they've never learned to use and they're feeling stressed trying to learn to use those and put things into this new digital pedagogy that I think teachers need to understand. And that's another thing that I think administrators can learn from in this co in these COVID numbers is that, you know what, if we take a day off that wasn't planned and we get some training for our teachers and we, um, you know, like ISTE's coming up, that's a $200 price tag that every teacher could go to and they could self-select those sessions that mean something to them. And, by the time people hear this, ISTE will be over or in process. But the point is, is we've got to have that same equity and equality for teachers as well in their learning. I agree. And I, I don't agree. think we're doing that. And I and, and I think we both agree that one day, like, here's everything you need to know in one day doesn't really work. What I'm finding working with teachers right now is two hours that I do every two weeks. So they have time to digest, to play, to try it out in their classroom. They come back and they talk to me about what worked and what didn't work. And it's this pivot of what the kind of PD we've been doing where we have a day off for PD instead pivoting. What can that look like in a pandemic as well? We've got to be rethinking everything right now with these kinds right. of COVID numbers coming up. And I'm sure if we looked at these numbers in January, it's going to be a lot different. Uh, hopefully it won't be worse, but unfortunately, I think it might be. But you touched on another thing that I, I, I hope the audience, those of you listening, I hope you'll gather from what Holly just shared. We can't go back to what was. Right. We can't. When we're past the pandemic, you know, it's time to, like, it's seriously time to start to 
reform, reimagine, and redo a lot of what we have been doing that I would say there is danger in complacency and there's comfort in the status quo. And it wasn't working for everyone. And I'm glad you brought up another point. See, there was an assumption that all teachers have broadband access in the home and the equipment necessary to teach remotely. And I know of plenty of teachers that didn't. And I don't have the data, but I know a lot. We're starting to post things on donors choose. There's a number of uh, educators I follow on Instagram that were doing fundraisers because they needed things like lights. You know, when my camera's turned on, you got to be able to see me. So second screen, every teacher should have a second screen right now. Yes. I mean, there's, there's all of that. So again, Mm -hmm. you know, and then my whole thing is, uh, which I have shared this with several, what I would, again, visionary leaders, I've actually said, I would re, I would reimagine the entire learning quote unquote day. I wouldn't have kids or teachers on a video chat for six hours. I would do it in like a four hour time frame, and you do, uh, you co-teach in two hour blocks with a 30 minute break in between. And you encourage students to move and the teachers to move. And then you allow for uh, what I would call, quote unquote, office hour time at some point mid to late afternoon where the teacher is connected and any students that need any support, uh, any students that just want to hang out, that you could do it during that time. Because, you know, the, the, the sad part is that, you know, there's still a mindset that that busy equals productive. Mm-hmm. And that's not true. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely not true. And I would actually argue that we can be more productive if we are more efficient with the use of our time. Uh, and and by way of saying things like, you know, uh, active instruction needs to be engaging, it needs to be interactive, and it needs to account for uh, device diversity, neurodiversity, and broadband uh, um differences. Uh, so again, to the point you just made, I, I watched on Twitter where a lot of teachers, unfortunately, were trying to find what's in there. What's the next best app? What's the next best platform? Or and how do I like, test my kids without yes. them cheating? Yes. And, and, and I, I just, I responded on one of them and I just said, you know, now is not necessarily the best time to yep. be trying to introduce a new platform. Yep. Uh, and I go, and by the way, you should double check any platform you use. If how accessible is it on something like a cell phone? Right. And I have a lot of kids working on cell phones. Exactly. And that's my point. It needs to be optimized for a mobile device as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there's a lot to consider. And, you know, I'm just hopeful that that everyone listening, you know, that you've gotten some ideas from our conversation and some of the stories that we've shared that, you know, ultimately, if at the end of the day, here's my thing. If at the end of the day, you can look in the mirror and say, I did my best with what I had. And my default was supporting the needs of yes. uh, the students and mine. Mm-hmm. That's all you can ask for. That's mm-hmm. really all that you can ask for. Mm-hmm. And I really don't want to see educators in general. And I, when I say educators, I mean everything from superintendents all the way across to you know the classroom teacher to the coach. And I say across, not down, okay, because it's important. Remember I had mentioned in a previous episode, asset, not deficit. Across, not down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I think if we operate from uh, supporting each other and saying, look, you know what, I need to I need to change what I was doing and I need to give myself the space to take care of my needs as well, that, you know, we'll do the best we can under the circumstances. There won't be, to quote you from the first, 
episode. There won't be what's identified as a quote unquote learning loss because they're still learning. Like you said, there's still learning taking place. We just mm-hmm. might need to think about how we actually measure that learning. And I, I want to say we might need to find a day in our uh, in the U.S. where teachers as heroes becomes a day because what teachers have done in this pandemic is beyond anything I have seen. They are learning how to teach, how to think, how to do things differently. And that kind of gives me a segue into our next episode, this rethinking of assessments during this teaching and learning in a pandemic. It's something that has to be First and foremost, we've got to pivot right now at what assessments look like. And I say this, Kim, because you're you're going to, this will affect you when I tell you this. And I'm sure that actually you've heard it. But I've heard that a lot of schools that are going hybrid are going to do this situation where people come back to school or students on Tuesdays. And then their, the other cohort comes on Wednesdays. And on that day when they're back at school is going to be the day when we test kids. First thing that does is make kids associate school with tests and hate school. If I can say one thing and I'll say it again in our next episode, don't do it. School should not be the place where testing happens. School should be at the place where face-to-face interaction, group work, deconstructing a lesson happens. And testing should change and look different from pandemic on. And we're going to talk about how to do that in our next episode. Super excited. We want to take a moment and say thank you to our sponsor, Book Creator. Book Creator is an incredible app to use in a blended learning classroom as it allows students to do more than create books, but interact with their learning. Check them out at app.bookcreator.com. It's definitely one of my favorite applications for teaching and learning in the classroom. Teaching and learning in the pandemic has definitely made us rethink what assessment should look like in the digital age. For more help, download your free assessment toolkit at infuse.link forward slash podcast. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Teaching and Learning in a Pandemic. This is a limited series that will disappear in early 2021, so make sure to listen to all the episodes before they're gone.